This is the eighth and final episode of the second mini-series of The Public Discourse, Rebuilding Together, where we've reflected on our hopes and aspirations for a post-pandemic society. On this episode, we are joined by Eric Friedman and Jesse Zhao. Our host, Jeff Cameron, will be talking with them about the economic choices people are making during the pandemic and how they can point us to new ways of thinking about our social and economic life. Eric is co-founder of OK Kombucha, and Jesse is a founding member of Zawadi Farm, an urban farm in Toronto. You are listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Public Discourse, Eric and Jesse. I'm really delighted to have you here. At the beginning of each episode of this podcast, we usually invite our guests to briefly introduce themselves. So could I ask you each just to say a few words about who you are and the businesses that you lead? Maybe Jesse, I'll start with you. Sure. Thanks for the intro and thanks for having me. It's a great honor. I appreciate this so much. Valid conversation to have. Um, I am a urban farmer in the city of Toronto and my practice is simply growing food in urban uh, growing areas. At the moment right now we have backyards, front yards and uh, public spaces at Donsby Park. And what we grow is basically for farm shares and also to go into communities for other things, which we'll, I'm sure we'll dive into. Wonderful. Thanks, Jesse. I'm so pleased you can join us today. Eric, how about you? Thank you for inviting me, Jeff. Uh, it's really great to be part of the conversation and really happy to participate. As you had mentioned, I own a kombucha brewery, so we produce and manufacture kombucha tea. For those who don't know what kombucha is, it's a fermented tea that is slightly sparkling, slightly tangy. Uh, it's a health beverage. Uh, so that's that's what we do. And we're based out of Toronto. Great. Well, I'm excited to talk to you about what it's like to uh, run a business during during a pandemic. But I, I want to start with, with the question of values. This is a topic we often end up discussing on the public discourse. Both of you run businesses that are an expression of certain values that you want to see reflected in the world around you. So you both introduced the businesses that you have uh, helped to found, but can you talk about the business and the values that inform it? Maybe Eric, I'll start with you. Yeah, absolutely. So when we first started the business, we were having uh, these conversations around the type of values that we wanted our business to be imbued with. And we came up with, with a couple of values that uh, really reflected the sort of activity that we're doing uh, when we're manufacturing kombucha. So we're essentially a, a food manufacturer, a food processor. So that's sort of the space that that we're in. So we really wanted to think of values that were really relevant for for that space um, that we're participating in. Some of the the core values that, that we came up with, which we think is really important when you're involved with food manufacturing, is transparency and uncompromised quality. I think transparency is really important when you're dealing with food and sharing that food with others. So what this means for us is uh, sharing our story, sharing where our ingredients are sourced, sharing our process, and really being very open uh, with our customers and our wholesale partners, really not holding back and 
uh, feeling like we have like some sort of intellectual property that we're trying to hold uh, close or tight with us, or you know, just trying to protect maybe some some process that is that is really unique to to the way that we run our business. Um, we really view this, at, you know, in a very different light. We we really want to share what we do very openly uh, with those who are engaged with us. Um, and the 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 component of uncompromised quality. When we're approaching the the beverage that we're manufacturing, we really want to make sure that it can be the best that it can, that it's going to provide the best value to the customer. Um, so oftentimes in food manufacturing, the way that products are developed, it's usually a price point to product. So they'll kind of figure out the economics. They'll think of, you know, what's the price of this ingredient? They'll cost the ingredients. And because they're trying to hit a specific price point, it's very challenging maybe to innovate or to kind of deliver the type of quality that maybe the customer would like. Uh, so they're kind of constrained by sort of the economics of it. And we really try and remove um, that uh, portion out of the equation and focus on quality. So like, what is it that we need to do? What are the ingredients that we need to source? What are the supplies, packaging, et cetera, that we need to work with to make sure that we're delivering on that value? And once we put all that together and we figure out what the cost is and see that it's viable, we can move forward with it, even if it means lower margins for us. So those are really two core pillars to the way that, that, we, that we run our business. Um, and the other pillar that, that really guides our actions are uh, genuine sincerity. Uh, when we were having these conversations, we're trying to think of even the language, like what is this thing that we do when we're interacting with our customers, with our wholesale partners, with our distributors? What's that principle that can guide our actions? And when we're having these conversations with my founding member, uh, we kind of arrived at this, at this word, genuine sincerity, uh, to kind of reflect the way that we want to carry ourselves. And this obviously extends to, to the customer. Anything that we do, we really want to make sure that, that it's of value to our customers and and hopefully you know they feel this this genuine sincerity from from our part when when we're sharing what we do with them. Well said. Well said. So interesting. Thanks, Eric. You're describing an approach to business. You know, includes the 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 need to make a profit, but also at, in every dimension, you're thinking about the values and principles that um, that allow the business to grow in in the direction that you and your founding partner have uh, decided upon together. Jesse, now going to you, I would like to ask you the same question. You've established an urban farm. Uh, what are the values that inform your work with that farm? Um, I have to say ours was a journey to, to understand the values. I came from the tech world. And when I switched into urban farming, I brought in the tech mindset and found out really quickly that doesn't work. You know, the farming environment has everything that I was used to backwards. So there's, I'll give you a couple of examples. So when, um, when we first started the farm, I was looking for land, right? I was looking to know where I'm going to start. So my initial thought was, you know, find a place, rent a place, get some money back, you know, just some funding and and find a space and, and start farming. And I quickly started learning that that's uh, that that something's different in the approach because somebody who heard of what I was doing opened up their backyard, seventy five hundred square feet, right there, boom, take for free. 
So that was an anomaly in the equation because that doesn't compute in the world of tech world. You know, you never get anything for free. If there's free, there's something else in the background that's going to take away from you. Uh, and then when we started with farming there, the produce that we had, I opened up a farmer's market that was we were running myself and some vendors. And we brought all our produce there in expectation that we have the food, we grow the food, it's good food, everybody should have it. And But we quickly learned that not everybody has the same access to food that we expected. Um, one of my favorite stories with that process that defined, uh, actually, which pretty much just defined the core values that we stand on, was um, every time we came to sell our produce, the conversation was like this. Somebody comes to our table, sees our produce, they like what they're seeing, but the first thing they'll tell us is, I can find that cheaper. I can find the kale cheaper. I can find the beets cheaper. I can. Mm -hmm. The conversation was based on money, 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 right? And in any negotiation stance, if somebody starts with a price figure for me, the negotiation has ended because they've already set their price in the ballpark. So for you to negotiate now, it's not about the produce anymore. It's now how much are you willing to give up financially, right? And it was such a difficult conversation because I never, could, for me, I couldn't win that conversation. So I had to go back and rethink and I thought, okay, I'm going to do something radical, something crazy. So anyone who came and gave me that line of, I can find the kale cheaper, for example, or beets or radishes that we grew, I gave them the produce. And I told them, listen, you go take it home, you eat it, come back next week and yell at me if you have to, or talk to me what, what your experience was. And what we learned from that was the retention of everyone who we gave the produce to, the conversation changed. The retention was 100%, by the way. They all came back, but the conversation was not on how much is it, is I have $25, what can I fill my basket with? So it's not about the, the, the price range, the prices. It's about the, I want this experience food-wise. I want it. I want to have this fit. And that's what changed our model from just um, standing on a table for five hours waiting for people to come in and buy produce to um, collectively creating a $25 box full of produce that we can deliver to people who are there. In fact, those people, like that retention, they became our first FarmShare members. That's how it all began. Um, but what we learned within that same process was not everybody can afford the produce. So the other part of the equation was to figure out how we're going to do that. We, um, my partner and I, we were thinking we can't, um, we, we don't need the financial, the huge financial gain, the profit. Would, initially, we're building a business. We're first year, first off the gate. So, so the financial need wasn't the first thing we were trying to attend to was this process prodded us to go back and learn our community, listen to our community, see our community. And for the first time, literally, I've been living in Etobicoke for over 20 years, but this was the first time I actually stood back and then started looking at my community. And when I started seeing that and meeting people, I started seeing how deficient of uh, my produce was in meeting them, uh, meeting those who cannot afford. So the low-income homes, my area is, is very densely populated with that. So we started thinking of a way, how do we engage our produce in a way that it's ethically reaching the people who can't afford it? So that other crazy idea came, uh, a friend of mine shared with me and said, listen, how about you define what your enough is? Enough is if you're growing for your farm shares, find a method in a way that after the farm shares have had their piece, so you've delivered all the produce there, 
anyone else who needs the produce that can buy wholesale, for example, kikambuchi used to buy our arugula. So we had that volume, but we also noticed we had extra volume over and above everything else we've done. So we started a community market, subsidizing everything we have to that community market. And it, it was night and day difference as far as bringing the produce there, it was gone because everything we had was fresh from the farm, literally. I was just going to the farm share, going to other spaces, but then it came right to a community. So we started doing more of that, more of that, more of that. So for four years, we did that consistently. All the produce that that we, even if with the scale of how we built the farm as far as crop planning, we added this to the equation, right? We, we, we planted in a way that's dense enough that all the produce can be sold and meet the farm share um, requirements and any capacity that we can, but then we could move a good chunk of that into a community. Um, so this this all happened with, again, like I said, the ethics, the, the, uh, the mental state was changing as we were engaging with the community, right? And, and then before COVID hit, and once COVID came in, it kind of kiboshed that community environment because we couldn't go to the low-income homes to sell our produce. So we partnered with Foodshare, who they were partner of us before, but Foodshare was able now to, we could move a bunch, a lot more product to them. And they had a, a great consolidation piece that they could take it and, and move it into their community markets way better than we could have. So that was a great uh, continuance to our conversation. I love what Eric was saying about transparency. You know, we're not trying to create something that's just ours and ours to protect. You know, the IPs mindset, right? Mm-hmm. You, you're open about it. Learn from us. We'll teach you. We post everything we do online. We communicate as much as we can. And next season, we're doing a lot more YouTube videos to pretty much talk about this conversation of build your community first, understand your soil second, and know who are your partners and build that relationship. And we found that the more we create that relation, those re- symbiotic relationships, they don't have to you know, fit perfectly, but the more we nurtured them, the more resilient we were through this pandemic. That's great. Thanks, Jesse. You've actually taken the conversation in the direction that I hope it would, would go. You, you both described a number of values that, that inform your businesses from the pursuit of quality and excellence and transparency to a desire to see uh, your products serve a healthier population. You've talked about community ties, partnership, and kind of seeing beyond the profit motive as an important dimension of how your businesses operate. But I'm also, I'm interested in how this pandemic has affected the way uh, that you work. Jesse, you were naturally talking about that in your remarks, that the Mm -hmm. environment of the the pandemic has shifted how how you are approaching certain things with your business. And I, I wanted to ask Eric this question that you've addressed, Jesse. I mean, how maybe what are some of the challenges presented by the pandemic? Because I think that's been something that has been in the consciousness of many people is the the challenge this poses to small businesses. But also, you know, I, I think you mentioned before that it can also create opportunities for doing things differently. So Could you speak to that about both maybe the challenges of adaptation, but also opportunities for for change? Yeah, for sure. So when the pandemic first started uh, in March, once the the lockdowns first started, it really challenged our current business model. So at the time, our, our business model was very much dependent on wholesalers. So us selling to, for example, grocery stores, cafes, 
restaurants and then them in turn uh, selling to to their customers. So this was the the business model that that we were pursuing. And because of the nature of what the pandemic did to local economies, our business model was completely challenged. So overnight, we lost 80% of our accounts. So 80, 80% of our revenue was was wiped off with no clear direction or understanding of when this revenue could return at that point. And, and during those days, during those weeks, we, we really, I, per, I thought that maybe this is it. Like this, this is it for, for the business. This is it for, for many small businesses across the city and the country. So it was really a rocky period and really characterized by, by uncertainty and really not sure what was going to happen to us. Uh, but with many businesses, you had to adapt. We had to change our business model. And what we ended up doing was uh, a direct-to-consumer model. And this is what many businesses uh, have done. This is really not particular to us or we're not really innovating in, in any regard. I think we were just reading our reality and seeing that people were home, people were still wanting to consume our products, and they were willing to pay a premium to get those products delivered to their door. We had to create a, a brand new infrastructure to be able to meet this, this home delivery demand from setting up a website to figuring out the logistics uh, in warehousing, in transportation, and how that product gets delivered to, to people's doors to order fulfillment. Like That's a whole ecosystem that that we had to figure out and we had to figure out fairly fairly quickly. So this new environment uh, challenged our business. It, it really made things very difficult for, for a number of weeks, but then it it opened this, this door that I think was always there, but now it was it was there in high demand. And it really pushed us to explore this model of, of directly delivering to our customers. And actually what it ended up doing, it was actually a very beautiful few weeks period once when we launched this model because now we were directly interacting with our customers and this was always the piece that was missing when we were dealing with wholesalers because the wholesalers the grocery store managers the cafe managers these were our customers so we would you know deliver a few cases we chat with them they'd say yeah it's great people love it so you know you kind of get the feedback through them, but you're not really getting, you know, the true feedback. Like, what is it that people really love? What, why are people buying your products? So we started directly interacting with with our customers and getting questions. And there were live chats on our website that we had set up so people could mm. write in, and we'd be able to respond right away. And you know, this interaction, this sort of like community interaction, uh, started to to begin, which I think is one of the upsides of, of the pandemic is that in many ways it has created new spaces for people to interact and for, for new communities to, to be created. Um, and, and now that the pandemic is, you know, created like a new, a new normal or whatever, and small businesses, some small businesses, grocery stores, cafes are starting to be able to reopen under new, new conditions. We're now having uh, the ability to now interact both with, you know, this old business model that we were dealing with, which, which was our wholesale, and this new business model, which is a direct-to-consumer model. So, so despite the challenges, now we're in a position where where we have new opportunities, we have new customers who've been able to find us, a stronger community, I think a stronger vision. 
Jesse, maybe I could ask you the same question, but in a slightly different way, because you already started talking about how the pandemic has created a new environment for Zawadi Farms. Mm-hmm. Are there certain things that you started to do in the last eight months that you think you'll continue to do, say, next year when, God willing, things return uh, to a more normal state? Um, I love the question so much because it kind of uh, pegs the understanding that systems could change before the pandemic and they're adapting in the in the new scenario what the pandemic was in the lockdown and then coming who knows what tomorrow brings everything's changing mm-hmm. by the minute by the time this conversation ends i'm sure we'll have new information to something has changed and now we have to adapt to it the challenge we had like going back even before the pandemic hit by the way eric thank you so much for that uh, analogy of how you interacted and met with your customers that was our number one goal once we started the farm. And once we started switching our mindset from the, you know, the IT brain, from, uh, you know, going to middle people, middle people, just going directly to the customer. And when we first started with, we had about 15, 20 customers. The first, actually it wasn't first, it was the second year. We, uh, we were delivering them. So we're taking a box of produce to somebody's home and they would take it. This is before the pandemic even hit. And what Eric is, is alluding to is one of the most powerful resources as humans that we lost in the interaction of, you know, box store than we meet. We're now 70, we're clocking hopefully 100 next year. And I don't want to give up my delivery time because I want to spend the day meeting people because hmm. that conversation that after, after the pandemic had to pull back because we, we couldn't go into people's homes and, and interact with them and talk about the produce and how you can cook it and whatever. We have to introduce new digital pieces to con- continuous conversations. But before the pandemic, the stories and the conversations we had were fuel because they would say that beet was, you know, or that kale was, or that, you know, could you could you grow this? Have you thought of growing that? Or do you have peppers for? And, and it... We evolved so fast because of our community gave us um, the pathway of how to grow or where to grow. You know, some neighbors are seeing our members receiving stuff. Like, what is that thing? Uh, well, it's, it's grown by, it's grown in Toronto. Grown in Toronto? What? And it just started changing and really fueling our our membership numbers and our narrative was, was getting even uh, more profound. Because people understood the more you support us, the better we, the more stronger we are in the in the pursuit of ending poverty in our community. You know, so they were fired up. What else can I buy from you? What else can I do? In fact, I have a friend who wants. I and mean, it just mushroomed and went to places that we, by the way, we've never advertised once. And we get calls to advertise, advertise, advertise. But because of the, our, our starting the initial conversation with our community, it really helped us to engage with them in a way that when we say coming to a new season, we have this X amount of spaces, it almost felt bad because we couldn't feed many people. We can't. We, you know, 70 is, is going to 100 is really pushing it. But what we started seeing now in the conversation of people liking our produce and everything else, now the people who are saying, the, the conversation was like it did before has gone past the conversation of money. It's now, what can I do for you? I have people who want to become writers for me. I have people who want to come become filmographers for me. Uh, that they've done actually, I've had a few come in last season. 
and some want to tell my story. Some actually, a friend of mine came in and did a video for us, which became a, a phenomenal tool that everybody, even today, that was almost four years ago, and still coming back to us and saying, I saw that video, please tell me more about what you do. So the conversation now has changed from product to corporate person buying is, that's done. I'm, I'm happy to pay for the produce, but what else can I do? What else do you want me to do? What else are you trying to solve? And I'll share with you a story here that that, that kind of adds to it. But um, we we normally don't we don't publish this anywhere. But I'll share with you because it kind of adds part to this piece. So every year, my partner and I, Misha, we buy Christmas trees, load them up in our front lawn, call our friends and families and and neighbors, and say, "Come get your tree." For five years, we've done this, um, and when we did that. It wasn't an expression of, you know, look at me, I made so much money, whatever. No, it wasn't that. Is is we know that people who will not get the chance to go out and find a tree, buy a tree, and bring it home. Some people don't have that ability, but we have this ability to do this. And the the change was this year, we bought 50 trees instead of the twin that we normally do. But we didn't pay for the trees. Our community did because they love the narrative of why we are engaged together, you know? So my drive to solve poverty in my community, that it's not my drive anymore, right? It's not our community drive. So how do we fix this? So over and above the transaction of here's my produce, here's my money, that's not the driver, right? It's part of the conversation because the narrative now is we have a bigger job to do. You know what I'm saying? So there's a communal uplift. So to me, that's that's fuel. The, the, the pandemic, to me, wasn't a tool to separate us as humans. In fact, it now gives us a chance to really take the time, look back and see where else, where else can we be effective in the composition of, you know, where Eric is or where I am or where you are, Jeff. So that to me is the, is the most powerful resource that I think we're missing. I know I'm talking too much, I apologize. No, this is great. I mean, you're both talking about how the, the pandemic has actually allowed you to reach into your communities, to your customers in ways that previously uh, you are unable to or, or, or hadn't developed the model to, to do so, which is kind of a paradoxical, isn't it? I mean, that we think of the pandemic as separating us, but you're describing how it's brought you closer together. Absolutely. I just want to now draw our conversation to a kind of closing point of reflection, which is to ask each of you to reflect on your hopes and aspirations for the future of our society, drawing on what you've learned over the last eight months or so. I think you've both kind of touched on these themes already in your comments, but maybe you can think ahead and think about what what your hopes are uh, for your community, for our society as we emerge from the pandemic. Eric, can I start with you? Yeah, for sure. That's a, a big question. I, I <laughs> we specialize in big questions. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming. Like we've been so grounded on on reality and what's what's been happening with our businesses. Yeah, I mean, I think we're all thinking about this. What is what is it that we're hoping for? Once this is once this is all over, I mean, beyond what we've been experiencing uh, personally for me what the pandemic has also created other than, you know, maybe new realities, new ways of interacting, uh, new ways of coming together. There's also an, another reality, which is it's highlighting the injustices 
that we see across the world at, at, all, at all levels. It's highlighting the increasing gap between the rich and the poor. That's something that the pandemic has actually caused. There's the rich are now richer and, and the poor are poor. Mm. This is a reality. It's highlighting the challenges with homelessness and poverty. It's highlighting the challenges with uh, access to healthcare, the challenges that marginalized communities have. So my, my hope is that as the human race, we can, we can hopefully look at the challenges that are now so much in our face before they were there. And maybe you could, you know, kind of brush them under the rug or whatever, but now, now they're so apparent. And I really hope that we, we look at them and we, we see them for what they are and that we're, we're able to respond to them in, in meaningful ways and in ways that they can actually um, create enduring change. That's, I mean, that's my hope beyond my, you know, what, what I hope happens to, to my business. I think <laughs> you know, my business will do, will do a small part. Uh, we'll do yeah. a small part, hopefully in, in, in the bigger change that needs to take place. Perfect. And Jesse, how about you? When you think about, um, maybe you can you can think in big terms. You can also think in terms of the the community that you're you're serving in the context of your business. What what are your hopes and aspirations for it in the in in the year to come? My friends who listen to this podcast will laugh because that's a dangerous question. <laughs> All I do every day is think about how to uh, what the future is and how we're going to meet it. Um, so. I'll give you the calls notes of how we're approaching this. So for us, um, when we first started, we knew that Zawadi will, will outgrow us, we'll know. We knew that it will, it will reach a point in time where um, there are people in the community who, who will take over the farm in some way, shape or form, that we as uh, Misha and, my, and myself will reach a point of bigger, bigger battles ahead of us. So we, we, are, we were prepared for that from the beginning. Before the pandemic, a friend of mine asked, one of my mentors actually asked me, Jesse, and said, Jesse, do you think you can feed Toronto? And a question never shook me so much to the core than that, because if you think of, if all systems of import shut down, can Toronto feed itself? Can, and Toronto calling Mississauga, Brampton, all the GTAs, but I'm pulling them in as a city and saying, can we feed us? Ontario, can we feed us? And that scared me because I don't know. Do we all the all the lands? If you drive around our city, uh, you know, Eric, you driving to Kingston, you see all for sale, for sale, for sale. Farms are disappearing, so that's a concern for us in thinking in the future we're not eating less, right? The population is increasing, the demand for food is increasing, but we're losing farmland. So what gives? Why? Why is that? So that's a challenge for us. We're trying to meet that. Um, and then if you look at our, our communities also, then the, the, the number one problem we have for me, a challenge that is that I want to get at is poverty. And poverty is not just a financial piece. It's a mental piece. There's a, there's a lot of cerebral action that happens that, that makes, that defines poverty in my, from my perspective. So how do we create an economy that is inviting, that is inclusive, that is adhesive, cohesive enough that even if we have issues of, uh, you know, extreme weather, drought, or border closing, pandemic, whatever, you put all those variables in that, we have teachers here who've existed 
way past that. The First Nations survived through worse, but they had methods and tools that became and made them resilient through even the worst of storms or weather conditions. So we're learning those things. We're trying to adapt them into our resources. And then over and above that, training people, giving people equipment and abilities to do what we're doing. So I have, uh, we're working with training mechanisms right now from any scope of, of farm, if you want to come in. If you come into our scale where you have like 100 plus members that you want to uh, work through or how you're going to work with them, we are creating methods that you can learn fast enough and well enough to do that. Or you just want to learn how to feed your neighbor, your, yourself, your family, and your neighbor. We are also creating methods for that. So for us, I'm taking this off uh, Eric's page where he shared about being open and transparent on how we're doing our things. It's the same idea for us uh, as we begin also for the future is train and equip as many people as we can. So those are the things we're, we're, we're still mulling over. And, and, and um, as my friends would know, I do have thoughts, but I don't sit on the thoughts. I act on the thoughts. <laughs> and we, Misha and I, uh, we, when we go to meetings, we, we have this uh, time, but we know, are we, are we still talking about it? Are we going to do something about it? And most of the time we hear, okay, well, let's table that for another time or let's go look for funding. And, for not, and we're like, no. So no thanks. And we will, uh, you know, take money from our pockets and go right into it, you know. And that's how we've done our business so far. We don't ask for funding. We take money out of our pocket and we just open doors and go to it. Well, that, that's a great note to end on, Jesse. Many people know the right thing to do. Fewer of them actually act on it. And this is a, you know, an opportune time to really think about the role of businesses in our, in our society, in our economy, this season of the year, and uh, during a time when you know, we're all thinking about how to make our societies and communities more resilient. So thank you very much, Eric and Jesse, for your time today. And um, look forward to talking soon. Thank you for having us, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. You have been listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. You can learn more about the Baha'i faith at baha'i.ca and follow the work of our office at oba.baha'i.ca, where you will find links to our social media handles on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.